At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Welcome to the Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And I wish I had something cool to follow that intro. I always kind of expect something is just going to happen. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But you know, that's movie magic, baby. How about that crash of thunder? Yeah, I was really kind of hoping deep down in my in my heart of hearts that the timing would work out so choice that there would just be like a really incredible dramatic clap of thunder right as I finished saying that. But, you know, me and the weather are not quite on the same schedule today, and I respect that. I mean, there is some thunder happening. <laughs> There's some, yeah, but nothing quite like that, you know, that epic thunder clap that we got a bit ago. Speaking of weather, and this is the only time that's actually an acceptable and interesting conversation starter. Uh-huh. <laughs> There is some wild weather going on in the country right now. Um, yeah, I've heard it's, um, pretty cold. Pretty, pretty heckin' cold, if you don't mind me saying so, if you'll pardon my language. Heard it's a little bit chilly. Yeah, pretty freaking chilly out here. In all seriousness, I hope you are, uh, if you are in one of those areas, I hope you are staying warm and staying safe inside. Uh, I should note, actually, our, our audio wizard, Val, is the one who kind of keyed me in on this. Um, they were sharing tweets about this. Uh, that Lyft is currently in New York and Chicago offering people free rides to uh, shelters where they can be warm and safe from the elements. So I did not know about that. I know Chicago's having a really rough point. I know that we have a lot of listeners out there in the Midwest, so please be taking care of yourself. There are warming shelters set up. Um, I know a lot of you, unfortunately, don't have a choice about going into work. I know that there are a lot of really unfortunate circumstances where you're required, even in some pretty horrible circumstances, to show up. So just take whatever measurements you can. Please don't leave your home without scarves or gloves or hats or whatever it is that you need. That's rough. I mean, it's we have like had some school closures and business closures out here too, but even so, like we're down on the single digits. We're not really even getting into that horrible, horrible negative 60 territory, that mm-hmm. subarctic environment that so many of you are dealing with. And so I will say, and I always mean it when I say it, but I say with like an extra level of urgency, stay safe out there. Yeah, please do. Yeah, good, important. Glad you brought that up. Yeah, well, you know like to have certain PSAs from time to time. Yeah, I know that I'm out here on the West Coast sort of away from all of that, but I'm st- I've been following this pretty closely and with a great deal of apprehension. So, yeah, it's uh like I said, it's rough. I've seen a lot of very cool videos of people throwing buckets of water up into the air and then freezing before they hit the ground, but the implications of that are as startling as they are whimsical. Yeah. I remember a couple years ago there was a cold snap kind of close to this and people were doing that with with uh, specifically pots of boiling water mm-hmm. and that was yeah. 
even more stressful for me because I was like, please don't spill that on yourselves. Yeah, th- this this doesn't end well no matter where it ends up. It's not a good time. Yeah, last time we had like a polar vortex system was a few years ago. I was um, still in college. I think it was my sophomore year uh, because I was back in Morgantown for the winter break and it was like negative 30 with wind chills out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was insane. I, um... That was when I was in that was when I was at Illinois Wesleyan. Yeah, that was when I was in Illinois because I got back for my juries too and it was um with wind chill it was about like the wind chill made it feel like about negative 40 and we got the notice of don't go outside uh frostbite within 5 minutes on exposed skin. I was just in the dorm uh and I uh, my fun thing that I did while we were all in the dorms hiding from the cold waiting for classes to start back up is I put a bunch of bananas outside overnight and then ate frozen bananas in the morning. Oh, that's charming. <laughs> that's what I did. Um, How very thanks. wholesome. Thanks. Some wholesome uh, all-American college student fun. But uh, in all seriousness, yeah. Exercise the precautions that you can. Be aware of resources in your city. There are warming shelters. There are rideshare services offering free rides to those for people who can't afford them. Do what you can to stay safe. That's that's really all there is to say on the matter. So, there's no way for me to pivot over to this without feeling callous. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, there's really no good transition out of that. I, I, I've dug myself into a little hole here. What am I, Shia LaBeouf? Digging all these holes? Thanks. And that's it. I shifted the tone successfully. Yeah, you did, because now Uh, we have to do literally anything to get away from that joke. So please, take us into our monster. Okay, cool. So... I would like to offer a bit of an unusual disclaimer, actually. Oh. Um, This is... It's it's fine. It's not even... I just want to offer it just in case, because I don't know what sort of stuff throws people off or bothers people. But uh, this episode does come with a lot of discussions of the deep ocean. Oh, okay. And also... Um, just kind of general grossness. I can't think of any specific. The problem with that is I don't have any specific triggers to, like, warn about. Mm -hmm. So I just have to say, like, if you have a weak stomach and sort of descriptions of gross-looking or smelling things are going to make you feel a little queasy, then this might not be the one for you. I I will say I'll, like, try my best not to paint too vivid of a word picture, but that's... And also, actually, I think listening will probably be fine, but maybe don't Google image some of the things I'm talking about, because it might be a little yucky. Ooh, yeah, maybe definitely don't do that. So I'd like to start first. Anyone listening already knows what this is about, but I want to just sort of intro you, Alex. I, I've told you about this I've told you about this before, but there is a comic by one of my favorite uh, manga artists, this horror artist named Junji Ito. Oh, Junji yes. Ito? Yeah. He has a lot of... Is this the one with the robots that walk the rotting fish out of the ocean? Is that what you're going to tell me about? That's Gyo, but no. Um, no, not Gyo. Uh, the, he has a short. My favorite thing of Junji Ito is actually, he writes a lot of longer form stuff, too. He has a couple series. He has Tomie. He has, oh boy, he has Gyo and he has Uzumaki. Those are his, like, longer series. But what he's best known for, for me at least, is compilations of shorts that are about 15 to 20 pages long. And he has a short that is probably one of my favorites of all time because it encapsulates my fear of sort of deep sea strangeness. And it's called The Thing That Drifted Ashore. And The Thing That Drifted Ashore, you can go and read it if you would like, but I just want to sort of lean into the opening image, is this beach... Uh, full of people surrounded, surrounding this enormous sort of unearthly blobby 
creature that no one has ever seen before. It's translucent. And then the premise of the story is inside of it, they can see all these people in its in its belly. And that's that's that story. But that image of sort of a mysterious thing on the shore is very powerful to me, very, very unsettling, because like I've mentioned on here plenty of times, I'm terrified of the deep ocean. So I would like to talk today about the much more... Uh, real life uh, accessible version of the thing that drifted ashore things that drift ashore I would like to talk about globsters okay do you know what globsters are Alex oh my goodness I've heard the word and I think I've seen a couple images but aside from that I know nothing about it I'm so ready though It's a technical term used by cryptozoologists to refer to mysterious carcasses that originate in a watery environment. They mostly come from the ocean. Some are also found on lake or river shores or even in the stomachs of dead whales. Basically, they are, by definition, something that is, it's the oceanic equivalent of a UFO, essentially. A a globster exists by virtue of being difficult to identify. It is a thing that has washed ashore or been found in a stomach or been floating in the water that is usually enormous and unrecognizable and strange and possibly derived from an animal that we have never seen before. And... The thing about these, as opposed to a lot of stuff that we talk about on this show, and it's something that's very interesting and, and that makes me happy, is that... There is no disputing the existence of globsters. Like, they do exist. The debate Ooh, comes in. Oh, boy, t- they sure do. Sorry, I'm just doing a cool, a cheeky little Google, Google image search here. Now do you see a way I warned people? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So the thing is, there's no debate. You can't debate about if they exist. The debate comes in when you're talking about what these might be. And that is what really excites me. Because similarly to, I say this a lot, you can't not believe in UFOs. Right. Because a UFO just means it's a thing in the sky that people don't know what it is. Totally. But what matters is where the debate comes in is if you think that's a weather balloon or a spaceship. And that's the thing with globsters is do you think this is like whale vomit or do you think this is some sort of animal that we've never seen before? Globsters are actually like that is as far as I can tell a cryptozoological term. It's a technical term. Mm hmm. You know how we cryptozoologists are with our technical terms. Yeah. So it's not like, it is a very weird word. It doesn't sound like a, it sounds actually what it sounds like to me. (laughs) You know, when people write like YA dystopian fiction and they try really hard to come up with slang, if like future slang. This isn't a lobster. It's a globster. It was a rock (laughs) globster. Um, But I just, I don't even think it would do that. I just mean like they always try to come up with these sort of vague future slang things. And I feel like globster is something Mm -hmm. like an insult that like a 12 year old in a dystopian future novel would use. Oh, probably. Yeah. Regardless, I first found a thing about them on the cryptid zoo. That's where I found the sort of explanation that they are a technical term, mysterious carcasses, watery environment. And there are a lot of different hypotheses about what they are, right? Sure. So one of them, a lot of them get labeled as basking sharks. A lot of them get labeled as other specific things. The thing about lobsters is that 99% of them can almost certainly be identified, but there's still a 1% that really can't mm-hmm. and that we don't really know what they are. So, for example, there is uh, the basking shark hypothesis. So, basking sharks assume this when they, sorry, uh, I'll, I actually, I'll put it in the description, a lot of discussion of animal death in this episode, so sorry about that, but I'll put in, I'll put a warning at the beginning. Um, basking sharks, when they reach a certain stage of decomposition, take on this sort of plesiosaur shape. They get kind of 
bloated. And so a lot of globsters that wash up kind of get labeled as probably basking sharks that were in the water for a long time. And that is what they are. But a lot of them have features that are incompatible with the basking shark hypothesis. And then a lot of the well-documented examples are a lot larger than any species of shark is supposed to get, even after the bloating and the sitting around in the water for a long time, uh-huh. which leads to the theory that uh, maybe there's some sort of undiscovered species of really gigantic sharks, like megalodon-type sharks. Big boys. But anyway, I would like to just sort of dive in to some examples in history of globsters. The thing about this is we have episodes that are, like, really hard to find sightings, right? Mm-hmm. This is all sightings. It's just only sightings. Nice. It's just only sightings and then weird conjecture. You know what I mean? So... I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah, I would like to hop over to an express.uk or express.co.uk article from um, May 12, 2018. Bad omen as 20-foot sea monster sparks fears of imminent disaster in Philippines. So, a massive, basically hairy-looking thing uh, washed up in the Mindoro province on a Friday night in May of 2018. And it was six meters long. And basically, there was this consensus among some of the locals saying that they thought it would be this omen foreshadowing an imminent natural disaster. Resident Tam Melling said, An earthquake is headed for Mindoro. The big lobster is a sign of something bad coming. Please pray for us. Oh. And a bunch of people were alarmed by it. Um, I can send you a picture of this specific thing, but it looks... This is this is the quote that makes me very, like, this gives me little creepy shivers. Uh, this is a resident, Vincent de la Peña Badillo says, or Badillo, I, I'm not sure. He says, it has been told that when creatures from the deepest parts of the ocean start appearing, something bad will happen. Ooh. And that makes me go like, <laughs> spooky, spooky. Spooky stuff. Mother of two, Amelda Maurice, says she's taken her children to see it, which they believed it to be a monster. She says, I couldn't believe what it was. I've never seen anything like it. In God's name, I was shocked. The children were scared it was a dead monster. Nobody knows what it is yet. So government workers took samples, which they basically said was probably some sort of dead whale. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't... I know things change over time. I know things... Decomposition does a lot of wild stuff. But this thing looks specifically like it is white. First of all, it's white. It is six meters long, sort of globular, and it's hairy. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm skimming over pictures, and all of them look kind of hairy and tendrily, and it's a lot. It's And, of course, there are things that can grow and, and sort of algaes and things like that, but I just... It, 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 I do love their mysterious lumps. <laughs> but specifically, I wanted to start with that one because the idea of these as sort of an omen of bad things is not uncommon. Even just from an actual literal perspective, not even from a supernatural, like this is an omen perspective, but considering if these are truly just debris and they sit around in the bottom of the ocean or in the really remote parts of the ocean, something that disturbs the water enough to bring that onto shore might genuinely be a sign that there's some sort of natural disaster coming. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm not even, that was definitely not even me being like, look at these wacky locals thinking that this means disaster. I'm like, no, they are could be genuinely like, 
you're not wrong. Just I like that you went the direction of natural disaster because when you started talking about that and you're just like, just literally, you know, a sign of danger and my brain immediately goes like, yeah, because what's out there killing these things? Oh, here's the thing, Alex. <laughs> here's the thing. I'm going to hop back over to the thing that drifted ashore really quickly. So, um... Spoilers uh-huh. for a Jinji Ito comic that was published like eight years ago. Uh, and if you don't want to hear me talk about specifics of when you read Jinji Ito stuff, the plot isn't really the part that's cool. Like, I mean, the plot is cool, but like you're reading it for the art. So it's not a huge deal. But if you don't want to hear the spoilers. Oh, yeah. Anytime you try to describe the plot of one of these things, it just sounds kind of dumb. I'm sorry. They're very good. But oh, no, exactly. But um, they don't translate well into conversation. That's my point. My point is, like, if you're really concerned about spoilers, skip ahead a few minutes. But to be honest, relaying the plot of this is not really going to ruin the reading experience for you if you decide to read it. But in the thing that drifted ashore, there is this sort of First of all, there is the question of this. This It's enormous. It's like so, so big of what killed that. Mm-hmm. There is that question first. And then there is my favorite aspect of it. And this is very creepy. Gets a little dark. I'm the scary one. Don't forget. Um, they do an autopsy on it. And when they open it up, all of the people that they could see through it in its stomach fall out and, and are alive. And they aren't bodies they were alive in this translucent creature's belly for god knows how long and so there's this and they're all like inconsolable they can't speak they're in states of shock obviously and and the sort of the question that the story ends on is what do you think these people saw down there in the belly of this beast hmm. and it just uh, and that just tickles my creepy fancy so well um but I like that that's where you... What I'm saying is I like where your head's at. <laughs> well, you know, I, I we've been doing this long enough that I think I've kind of figured out all the right points to hit on. I like your instincts. I like where you're going, kid. I like where you're... I like where you're... I like how you think. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I'd like to hop over for a slightly more scientific perspective, less bad omens or um, what's killing the monsters in the ocean, and, and talk a little bit about uh, some specific explanations. I'd like to uh, talk about writing on it uh, by Benjamin Radford of LiveScience.com. Benjamin Radford's a live science contributor. This was from 2014. Featured another image of a globster, which is definitely some sort of giant squid, which is exciting to me just because giant squids are uh, frightening. But <laughs> you've got this. I just want a soundbite of you saying giant squids are... Uh frightening because yeah they are though uh if i may what monsters may lurk deep in our oceans we feel fairly safe on dry familiar land where dangerous animals can usually be seen and avoided but since men first took to sea thousands of years ago legends and stories have been told of fearsome marine monsters that awaited those who ventured too far from shore so, <laughs> talks about the Leviathan, the Kraken. And so, that kind of takes us into the idea of the Globster. Because a lot of people, and this, is, this article is mainly meant to refute, refute this, but a lot of uh, Globster discussions mm-hmm. bring up the idea that not only could this be some sort of, it's a giant squid we haven't seen before, or a giant shark we haven't seen before but they might just be fully just sea monsters uh specifically excuse me mother nature excuse me could you couldst thou cease would you mind madam 
So, in Mysterious Creatures, A Guide to Cryptozoology, George M. Eberhardt gives this is the description of a typical globster. <laughs> no apparent bone structure, ivory-colored, rubbery, stringy, extremely tough skin, covered with fine hair or fiber, no defined head, and no visible eyes. Sounds nice, right? Sounds like a cool, fun friend. Does it not sound like something you want to find on your nice morning beach walk? Is that not... It's maybe not my favorite thing. So a classic one, uh, one of the classic globsters, you know, classic rock, classic films, classic globsters, uh, was washed ashore in 1896 when giant waves tossed a massive fleshy corpse onto a beach at St. Augustine, Florida. This one was six feet high. It was rubbery (laughs) and examined by a local naturalist who speculated it was from a giant octopus. So you've had many others, and I will go into many, many, many specific globsters, but this article references specifically one in Chile in 2023, in 2003, one in Newfoundland in 2001. Now, so what are they in terms of scientific analysis if they're not things that we can't explain, if they're not animals we've never seen before, then what are they? In a series of articles for his publication, The Cryptozoology Review, marine biologist Ben Roche examined the original accounts of over two dozen globsters found between 1648 and 1924. He concluded that the creatures often turned out to be basking sharks, whales, or fish, or some other known creature. In other words, sea monsters might exist, but if they do, their dead bodies aren't washing up on beaches. (laughs) So... A team of biologists led by Sidney Pierce published in the April 1995 issue of the journal Biological Bulletin noted that claims are regularly made that the blobs are the remains of sea monsters. For example, the Tasmanian West Coast monster is still referred to as a monster, although an Australian scientific team identified it as a whale. There's also the St. Augustine, Florida sea monster, the Bermuda blob. Those are described as remains of gigantic octopus by some, although... The person who named the St. Augustine specimen recanted his identification in favor of whale remains, and in spite of microscopic and biochemical analyses showing that they were nothing more than the collagenous matrix of whale blubber. So some sort of um, blubber things, or it reminds me of, um, do you know what ambergris is? I do, yeah. Yeah. Ambergris is this waxy substance that whales vomit up that washes ashore. Yep. It's used to make high-end perfume, or it used to be, and I don't think it is anymore because whales are endangered. Anyway, that's, I digress. I have to say that, like, there are, just as a quick sidebar, there are certain words that are just, like, always bad, no matter how you hear them, or, like, what circumstance you hear them in. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of people have very specific ones. I know moist is one for a lot of people, but there are so many that come up specifically when you're discussing like beached things on like, like the word fleshy you said earlier. And I'm like, okay, that makes my skin crawl. And just now you said collagenous. And I'm like, don't like that one either. <laughs> no, I also don't like gelatinous. Gelatinous is pretty bad. There's going to be more as we oh, yeah. as we go through this. I just like, this is a, a conversational topic that I feel lends itself very well to some particularly squicky terminology. Oh, yes, 100%. Now, here's the thing. Most globsters have been identified as decomposed whale carcasses. Sometimes, and this is, I'm just going to quote directly from Benjamin Radford here, a definitive scientific identification of a piece of animal flesh is simply not possible. 
Despite huge advances in DNA research, the results of a genetic test are only as good as the sample it is taken from. As with alleged Bigfoot samples, a result of unidentified or unknown does not mean that the animal it came from is unknown to modern science. It simply means that an identification was not possible from the samples available, which may have been contaminated or simply too degraded to yield valuable information. So, there is that to consider. I mean, that's fine, but it's also a monster, you cowards. Yeah, that's the thing. As I was going to say, it's pretty easy to say that when you'll never be proven wrong, isn't it? Um, <laughs> like, if we can't identify it, maybe because the sample is too degraded, how do you know that if the sample weren't too degraded to read, that it wouldn't be a monster? Haha. Counterpoint, science. What does your science say about that, Benjamin? <laughs> Where is your proof of the lack of God now? You, with all your science and your electron microscopes, cannot tell me that there are no sea monsters. Gram stain? You think a gram stain can contain the depths of cryptozoology's might? (laughs) (laughs) In all seriousness, though, it is worth acknowledging that something I bring up a lot on this show, wow, what a surprise, recurring themes, the deep ocean is full of... So much stuff that if you just showed me a drawing of it, I would say, you made that up. That's a made-up thing that you you created. You're very smart and very disturbed. Why did you make that up? That's one of those sixth-gen Pokemon, and I hate it. Exactly. So there's enough stuff in the deep ocean that if you just told me about it, I would think you were lying to me or making up fairy tales or spinning me a fanciful tale of the deep. So I just don't understand the reticence to agree that perhaps sea monsters exist. I just don't understand this uh, resistance. Particularly when they're already saying that there are samples that are too degraded to determine the exact DNA construction. Also, actually, not saying this is necessarily true, but just because something has whale DNA doesn't mean it's a whale that we've seen before. And also, like, the thing about sea monsters is they're, like, I'm sure they exist, but there are so few accounts of sea monsters that even require you to acknowledge supernatural abilities. No, like, exactly. We're just suggesting huge things that live in the ocean with lots of tentacles, and we know for a fact there is already a distinct subclass of huge things that exist in the ocean with lots of tentacles. Like, that's a real thing that we know we have on Earth. Sea monsters are not, like, anything that requires you to stretch your imagination even a little bit. That's what I mean. The suspension of disbelief required by the existence of sea monsters monsters versus most other sort of cryptids or supernatural things in general even, it's just not very much because contrary to something like Bigfoot where people are like, well, there's only so much surface area to like this forested area. There's only so much land for these creatures to hide on. And again, Bigfoot is of course real, but you know, um, that's the argument a lot of people make. Like we would have seen it by now. We would have found it by now. But In the deep ocean, where you have parts of the ocean that we still can't physically go because we will be crushed and die. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, you can't exactly say we've seen the whole ocean now, so how do we, so there can't be anywhere else left for these to hide. Buddy, we haven't even seen half the ocean. Oh, not even half of half the ocean. There are legit oceans under the ocean. That's true. There are sub-oceans. Yeah. Subaquatic lakes are really, really fascinating and super cool, actually. But, like, if you if you didn't know that was a thing, like, I, I know this sounds like the kind of BS I make up on this show on the reg. This is a real thing. There are underwater lakes. You need to look it up. It will blow your mind. It's so cool. Oh, yeah, there are. Okay, so I have to be a little bit gross again for a second. Not that anything in this episode was ever not going to be gross, but you know what I mean? I guess you. 
So I do have to offer some perspective on some explanations for the sort of textural weirdness present in these globsters. Uh, this comes from Azula.com. This particular uh, quote, this source is Wallace J. Nichols, who's a marine biologist, and says, Through a combination of bloating and decomposition and even dehydration, if the animal carcass has been exposed to the sun for an extended period, the bodies of stranded animals can become hard to identify. Eyes bulge, teeth and bones become extremely exposed, skin is stretched, the familiar markers and elements of cuteness fade, and monster-like characteristics are interpreted. Also, explanation about the hair. This is from Newsweek. Newsweek reports the hair seen in the decaying Philippines whale is actually made up of muscle fibers and decaying blubber. Different parts of the flesh break down at different rates, marine biologist Nicholas Higgs told the outlet. Connective tissue between the muscle and blubber is quite tough, so it frays into straggly, hair-like coating. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm only laughing because it's terrible. You can't see the face I've been making for the past two minutes, but it's not pleased. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I like I'm not sorry. I'm delighting in the I'm delighting in the havoc I'm causing, but I am also a little bit sorry. I don't forgive you yet, but I'm sure I will. I understand. In all seriousness, even if these are not monsters of any kind, if you ever see something spooky, scary, uh, washed up on the shore and you're taking a nice beach stroll, don't approach it or touch it because um, there is a risk to human health no matter what it is. It carries decomposing animals, carry disease. Don't touch it. Look, I of all people understand the impulse when you see a weird dead thing on a beach to poke it with a stick. I'm just saying perhaps... At the very least, use a very, very long stick if you ever encounter something like this. And then at the very most, maybe just fight that urge. Just fight that urge. Yeah. And don't touch it. I would feel really bad if someone got super salmonella or whatever from... I'm kidding. I don't know what diseases specifically a decaying whale would carry, but... I know one is a disease called you got whale guts all over your arm and it's not good. Oh, is that a, is that a disease? Yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a horrible condition, really. Is it contagious? And it spreads by touch. Yeah, it is. Oh, wow. Dang. Yeah, if you have whale guts all over your arm and you touch someone else, they also have whale guts all over them. Did you know? Oh, stay safe out there. Goodness. So, I'd like to talk about some more just uh, famous, famous globsters who must have washed up on the shore. So I would like to hop over to listverse.com, catering to my specialized interest, which is to say I love top 10 lists. I'm that person. Yeah, we know this to be true. Yes. I'm the person that all the top 10 lists were made for. It's just for me. Hello. It's me. It's sort of like a spotting the person who would, would buy 50 watermelons in one sitting in a math textbook. That's, yeah. I am a just sort of everyday cryptid. I'm the person who loves top 10 lists. So... Top 10 Fascinating Globsters and Sea Carcasses. Let's dive in, shall we? So first, there is the Tasmanian Sea Monster that was discovered in August 1960. It was also called the Tasmanian Blob. It washed ashore in, I think you can probably extrapolate from context clues, Tasmania. It had no identifiable bone structure and was originally believed to be a new species of mammal. Ooh. Attempts to scientifically explain away such claims were initially unsuccessful. It had no eyes or a visible mouth, it was covered in stiff white hairs, and it was over 20 feet long. <laughs> and it was hypothesized that it was a decomposed whale. But 
media outlets latched on and everyone just started running with the story and being like, it's a cryptid, it's a new animal, it's a it's a blob. And then unfortunately, this one did get confirmed in 1981 to be a whale. Although that was just, that was a, from scientific analysis of the collagen fibers. And so I do, I don't know. I'm just saying. Things, maybe a relative of a whale, maybe a type of whale we've never seen. We don't have any way of knowing that this is a recognizable species of whale. We just can look at the collagen fibers on this very degraded thing and say, mm-hmm, that's got some whale stuff. That's got some whale stuff on it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's whale adjacent. So the Bermuda blob, discovered in May 1988 by a fisherman named Ted Tucker, found a fibrous blob on the shores of Bermuda. It was originally believed to be a cryptid, but subsequent analysis has disproved this theory, which I don't care for. It was stark white in color with five distinguished limbs. Makes me happy. Ah, I just love it. Now, here's a fun one. This is a little bit different. I really like, I'm sorry, but I really like the word choice of distinguished instead of distinguishable. Yeah. No, the limbs were very classy. Like Each of those limbs. I was going to say, those two words, those two words mean something very of, different, which maybe they shouldn't, but they do. No, Alex, each of those limbs was holding a little cucumber finger sandwich. They were distinguished. With its pinky out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the gumbo was discovered in June 1983 by 15-year-old Owen Burnham in Bungalow Beach in Gambia. And he discovered a bizarre sea carcass, which would remain shrouded in mystery for years to come. So Owen made a sketch of the creature, um, and it was the only surviving like- likeness as the carcass was never photographed. This is one of the few globsters, actually, that we have a sighting but no image of. And the drawing... Bizarre Sea Carcass Shrouded in Mystery Part 2 is my favorite Decemberist song. Oh, good. I'm glad. (laughs) I think they they got a Grammy for that one, right? (laughs) The sketch he made is sort of kind of plesiosaur-like, which is interesting because that phrase has come up before. And that's just me saying this particular article doesn't use the word plesiosaur. It just, that's what it looks like to me. It's got sort of a long tail and then it's got the tail tapers down and then rounds into like a ovally middle and then sort of an alligator-shaped head with little flippers on the front and the back. The beast, named Gombo, after the geographical location of its discovery, it was taken to a nearby village, apparently, where Owen lived and was decapitated by villagers who proceeded to sell the head to an unidentified tourist. So, if you bought a head uh, of an animal in Gambia in 1983 and you're listening, please reach out. I want to hear about this. Yeah, misconnections. Let's find this person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, it was 15 feet long with a light brown coloration and oily skin. Same. So, this is very different from some of the ones we hear about before. The head bore similarities to a dolphin head. The midsection was a lot wider than a dolphin, and it appeared to have been wounded before death as the rear flipper was almost severed. So the current location of the creature is unknown, which is a hilarious thing to say. Very bold to say when this was written in 2012 about something that died in the 80s. Just like the idea that it is even still anywhere it could be located. Yeah, seriously. Bold to assume. So... There's the St. Augustine monster. I mentioned this before. This one had a lot of, has a lot of debate even now, I think, in terms of what it actually was. It was initially believed to be evidence of a new species of giant squid because it was sort of pinkish. Then it was disproved and said it had to be probably a piece of giant octopus. Now, it is worth noting that the theory was disproved, but this article does bring this up, and I do like this, that in 1925, which obviously was a lot after this, the colossal squid was discovered and acknowledged as a new species. So 
they could have actually been right. <laughs> but And it could have been a colossal squid, or perhaps even a different kind. But it was described as having seven tentacles, all of which were very long in proportion to the body, and many of which had been severed and scattered along the beach. Oh. That's terrible. It had a clearly identifiable head. And the head was described as being shaped like a sea lion. <laughs> Are you still there? Yeah, your your audio cut out for a second. Oh no. It I started heard shaped like a sea like, lion. Oh, okay. The suspense was killing me. Sorry. So the Montauk monster discovered in July 2008 in Montauk in New York was not so much a globster and more of just a strange thing that washed up on the uh, on the shore. And it looked like it had the head of a bird with visible teeth on the lower jaw, the torso of a canine, and was completely hairless. So people are still speculating about what this thing is. The popular theory is that it's a raccoon, like a diseased raccoon with like mange or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the upper jaw decomposed in the sea and gave the appearance of a beak. But raccoon's legs are significantly shorter than those shown in the picture. So it doesn't really hold up. So it's this sort of weird... Sort of this weird little bird-faced mammal thing that washed up in New York in 2008. I don't know. What do you think it is? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Bird-faced mammal thing is like, I heard that and my brain was immediately just like, slams hands on desk, a friend! So like, I don't know what else to tell you about that. I know that it's my friend. Oh, okay. That's understandable. It's my pal. It's my buddy. Okay, good. Uh, Any other synonyms for friend you'd like to drop? My companion. Oh, very good. My comrade. All right. (laughs) So the Newfoundland blob, I won't spend a ton of time on because it's not really that interesting of a story. This was August 2001. It's just really gross. It was proven to be the remains of a sperm whale pretty quickly. The material was not too degraded for them to do a DNA analysis of it, but it was also just, it's, it's just, it had involved kind of a gross process of like, all of the hard bones had dropped out of the bottom and sunk to the bottom of the sea, so it just left, like, the soft bits, and they sort of congealed into a mass and washed ashore. Um, do you like that? Was that good for you? It's fine. So the Chilean blob was discovered in July of 2003. It has a lot of significant differences from normal globster cases. One of the most obvious is its size. It was 12 meters across and weighed over 13 tons. A unit. So the texture was partially translucent, (laughs) um, which led people to speculate about it being a species of octopus. And it made worldwide headlines upon its initial discovery. Some of the more enthusiastic believers put forward claims that it was partial remains of a leviathan. Ooh. Mm-hmm. The blob has been invi- identified since as a whale carcass, but many biologists contest this view because the creature had quickly been established as an invertebrate. So. Well, how fascinating. Maybe there's some sort of boneless whale. Oh, no. Is that not, do you not like that? A boneless whale? The phrase boneless no? whale, I've just... <laughs> My brain doesn't quite know what to would do with that. Would you like your that. whales bone-in or boneless? I would like a boneless buffalo whale. A buffalo uh, whale. I don't eat wings. I'm just guessing from terminology I've picked up on the street. I don't know. Okay. I'm just, so, wait, wait a second. Are you pretending that, that buffalo wing terminology is some obtuse language that you can't possibly comprehend because you're vegetarian? <laughs> I just more so mean that Wait, I don't I'm know if sorry. that's actually the don't, official. Don't even try to hit me with that. I don't, 
<laughs> I don't know if that's like the official verbiage. We I don't know how it... a cryptozoology podcast, and that is the most BS thing you've said today. <laughs> I, well, what I wanted. Okay, look. I'm not saying I don't know it, but I'm more <laughs> exercising exercising precautions so that strangers on the internet don't yell at me for talking about wings wrong. That's that's some Riverdale-ass nonsense, where you just come in here and you're like, hmm, I don't know what that mysterious thing is. And it's like, it's a football. You've, you've seen these. So the Zuyamaru carcass was discovered in April 1977 by a Japanese fishing crew. <laughs> It's named after the fishing boat that scooped it out of the water, the Ziyomaru. Ziyomaru, excuse me. Mm-hmm. It was a decomposing corpse hauled out of the ocean. Um, the crew was convinced they had discovered some sort of prehistoric animal. They actually nicknamed it Nessie, which is cute. Oh. Now, it remains unclassified, which is exciting. There's evidence that strongly suggests the basking shark, which is something I mentioned before. Basking sharks do pop up. But despite this, it's not actually been specifically identified i believe the genetic material was too decayed to get a read on so Mm -hmm. we still don't actually know what this was which is exciting to me so maybe it was some sort of prehistoric beastie so are sharks they really are oh my god i think i mentioned this already but i touched a shark when i went to the aquarium recently they had like the little sharks that aren't scary in a touch tank and i touched one on its little head oh i'm proud of you thank you it was kind of rough like the texture was like sandpapery i didn't expect that Mm -hmm, yeah anyway I like this one because it sounds like an old-timey party clown. Trunko. (laughs) Trunko was discovered in October of 1924. So if y'all would just, like, do a little Charleston for me while you listen to me tell you about Trunko. Trunko is the only globster to have been sighted whilst still alive. Ooh! According to witnesses, Trunko struggled to escape from two killer whales off the coast, using its tail to fend them off for more than three hours. It washed up on a South African beach a few days later and then was so named because of its characteristic elephantine trunk, which was not initially visible from the coast. So there are no good photographs of Trunko because it was 1924. There's like a very grainy kind of crappy black and white picture of a mass on a beach, but it doesn't, I can't really make out a lot of details from it, Mm -hmm. but it's okay. The, The purported appearance of Trunko is weird even for a globster. So it has this trunk that protruded oddly from no particular part of the torso and the torso covered in white fur to the extent that it was believed on discovery to be a polar bear. So it also had a crustacean-like tail and no visible face or bone structure and was, as far as they could tell, had just completely bloodless, no blood. Oh, oh, I see. No photos were taken, or no photos, four photos were taken. Only four photos were taken. I cannot talk. And they were completely overlooked by Globster researchers until 2010. So (laughs) the first photo, the photo that I'm looking at right now, shows a man doing what any one of us would do, honestly, and poking it with a stick. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Uh, I love... There's something very precious to me about the fact that just... That's one of the unifying factors of the human condition is this urge to poke weird dead things with a stick. Don't understand. Poke it. We all do it. It's what I did when I found a cannonball jellyfish on the shore. It's what I've done with many weird things that I've found in my time. So there's also the Stronsay Beast discovered in September of 1808, all the way back into the old-timey times. So... Back in the way back days. So on the island of Stronsay, it's uh, located in the Orkney Islands, there was a giant serpentine creature that washed ashore. And 
200 years after its discovery, it still remains totally without explanation. To be fair, that's because biology has probably advanced a lot between then and now, and there's not really any way for modern biologists to look at this thing that was seen in 1808, because there's not photographs, there's not, it's not <laughs> right. like we still have it. But still, it's never been explained. It, that's kind of the thing, right? When things are like, and they remain unsolved to this day. It's like, well, yeah, buddy, we don't still have the evidence. But even then, I would like to describe it to you. It had... Please do. A, ...an extremely long and slender neck and tail with a wide torso and three pairs of feet, three pairs of feet, three pairs of short paws attached, had a mane of sharp bristles, which continued down from the neck to the lower back. It was 55 feet long from head to tail and would have been even longer, but a lot of the tail appeared to have decomposed already. Oh. Yeah. So... I mentioned already that there's a common explanation of a basking shark when things look kind of like this, but here's the thing. Even if this was a basking shark, this is a really big outlier because the longest basking shark in history was recorded at less than 40 feet long, and this thing was 55 feet long. So at the Wait, very- I'm sorry. Do- What? Do basking sharks- Maybe this is a stupid question. Do basking sharks have paws? Well, I'm going to look it up right now. I think the explanation for something like that would be, Alex, probably that, like, the flippers had degraded and sort of moved around and looked kind of funky. Okay, because you had me confused for a second where you were like, I have three sets of paws. It's probably a basking shark, and I'm just, like, sitting here. Oh, no, that's just what people are saying it is. I'm not, that was not, that was not me editorializing. They were like, this is a basking shark. No, 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 shark. I get you. I'm just saying, like, those two pieces of evidence next to each other, like, I was sitting here, like, the math lady with, like, all of mm. the, the triangles around my head just kind of, like, shiftily looking around. Oh, like, yes, Wait away. Here's the thing. They use the word pause. There's an illustration of it, and they look kind of, they're, they're flippers. Oh, they're like, heck. there's six pairs of flippers. So, like, you could kind of explain that away with a shark having extra flippers for some reason, like vestigial, like extra little. Well, I'm mad because I really liked my cool dragon friend with the paws. I understand. But I do need to bring up again the fact that even if this was a basking shark, it is... It, it blows out of the water, quite literally, <laughs> the longest basking shark on record by over 15 feet. So that's pretty wild. It's a pretty big outlier in terms of size. But yeah, during the time period, the Natural History Society of Edinburgh tried to classify it, but failed and concluded that it had to be some sort of serpent. <laughs> <laughs> With paws. There have been a lot of people... What? With paws. Continue. With, it's a, yeah, like a little uh, Chinese dragon or something. Yeah, my friend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But there's no photographs, so it's unlikely the mystery will ever be solved because there's not really a way to evaluate this thing anymore. There was also a period of time, apparently, according to another one of my sources, during the from the 80s to the 90s, where just a bunch of white blobs were washing ashore all over the world. Yikes. They were about less than a meter to 12 meters long, and they had blob-like protrusions and fine white bristles on the surface. I... Protrusions is another one, right? And here's the thing. I'm about to read you a sentence that would be totally fine except for the addition of one word. Okay. Almost all of them were identified as whale blubber. Hi. I, I hate it. <laughs> Almost. 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 Huh. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's an okay sentence until you add almost on the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Any further explanation on that or... Nope. Cool. That's the end of that article. Cool. That was an article from mythology.net, and that is the end of the page. Thanks. I didn't want to sleep. <laughs> so uh, who can say? Maybe the other ones were uh, some sort of little little blob monster friend. You know? Whomst can say. And to be fair, people have said that it's like, could be collagen, could be 
actually um not to get like really weird but uh oh yeah but why would we ever do that not to get even weirder thank you but um from the uh, skeptoid from skeptoid.com there is the explanation that uh sperm whale genitals <laughs> so a sperm whale's i'm just going to read from this yeah, a sperm just whale's do it. junk is a sperm whale's junk is the lower section of the spermaceti organ in its head. So it's not really genitals. It says junk. But, like, making up a quarter of a sperm whale's entire mass, the complete spermaceti organ can weigh over 10 tons and produces the sperm whale's distinctive head shape. So it's encased within this thick, fibrous muscle. It's got this big sack of oil, basically. Uh-huh. And it's really dense. The bottom third of it is weighs up to three tons itself. That's called the junk. Holy cow. And if it's discarded because it's filled with extremely tough collagen partitions and it's extremely heavy, they use it as like a battering ram. They've even sunk whaling ships with it. But that basically is something that would look like a shapeless mass that would wash up on a beach. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. So there's also that. I initially read sperm whale drunk and thought that he literally meant their genitals. Yeah, I thought that was going to be way worse than and it then ended it wasn't. up being. I misread that initially, and I'm very glad that I misread that, actually, in fact. I'm very glad that my brain on my initial reading skipped over the word in its head and just, like, didn't see that part and was just like, they're junk, an oil sack. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, dear Lord. It actually, it, it worked out well because it's kind of like that thing where you preface bad news with, like, a much worse alternative and then say, well, it's not that. It's just this thing. And then you're like, okay, phew. All right. It's true. It's true. So... So you're not pregnant, you're just dropping out of college. Great. No, that's fine. Exactly. So that is pretty much, it's not everything that I have, but that is pretty much a thorough discussion of globsters. If you want to read a little bit more about them, you can also find uh, there's stuff about them. I found a really fun little dive into just general stuff about globsters on dreadcentral.com's section, The Gasp Menagerie, which is paranormal news from around the world. And they have a section on globsters, and that is a really fun kind of just general read. It's got some of the things I mentioned before. It's got some really good pictures. But also, if you have a weak stomach, please don't look at those pictures. They're really gross. Yeah. Fun name for a website, though. I'm into that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Gas Menagerie is very cool. But, yeah, here's the thing. Even knowing what some of these are, even knowing that there are scientists that have basically, just for me, come to say, Addison, it's okay. I promise they're whale blubber. I still look at them and the primal part of my brain says, danger, danger, danger. <laughs> bad, bad, get away. <laughs> the danger Will Robinson robot in my brain is just flailing its little arms. Maybe touch to it, run. but don't touch it. Touch it with a stick. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. And here's the thing. I know it's not the most uh, savory of topics to discuss. I know it's not the most pleasant to look at. It's not exactly going to be in the running for prettiest cryptid at any time soon. But I just think these specific things, they just, they capture my fancy in a, in a way. I, I have a soft spot for the grotesque and the weird and blobby masses that wash aboard our shores. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to spend some time with the kind of stuff that makes your skin crawl, but you also want to poke it with a stick. Oh, 100%. Because is there anything in this world more human than that? Beautifully put. Thank you. Yeah, I'm scared of the ocean. <laughs> this is chapter 18, or I don't actually, who knows? This is chapter a billion of Addison is scared of the ocean. And uh, thank you for joining me for that. Glad we could all be here today. 
I have such a weird, it's weird that of all the ways my self-destructive streak manifests, I feel like the most productive one is my tendency to want to read things about the ocean, even as I am terrified of the ocean. It's, it's not a totally horrific habit, right? I mean, like, there are definitely worse ways to set yourself up for a bad time. It's, exactly. And, and also, there are more irrational fears out there. I don't really particularly intend to ever overcome my oh. ocean fear. Thalassophobia a, is an extremely yeah. irrational fear. Yeah, I have thalassophobia. And I think I'm okay with that because it's kept me alive so far. Yeah, right. Like, that's not, that's not that buck wild of a fear. Open water gives me so much anxiety. I still, I feel bad, but I still can't even, I've gone like on, on nature trips and stuff where we've been in front of this beautiful, serene lake and I look out at it and I know that I should feel at peace. I should feel, feel that placidity. I should feel that, like that beauty of nature, but all I can see is just the still wide surface of open water. And I just feel this low, like just building just sort of the jaw music playing inside my chest as dread builds in my body and I just get more and more nervous looking at it. that's why in a horror movie I'd die first. (laughs) Yeah, see, I would do really well in a water-based horror film because I wouldn't be there in the first place. (laughs) Right, yeah. So I'll never even know how I'd respond because I'll never be in that situation. (laughs) But plenty of other ones because here's the thing. Contrary to that, uh, I have no survival instinct when it comes to haunted places. So if you tell me that like a an old building is haunted, my first instinct will be to go inside. So it's fine. It all evens out. <laughs> we're just we're just doing our best and trying to avoid the scary, dangerous things and uh, run headfirst into the other scary, dangerous things that don't scare us as much. <laughs> I was gonna say trying to avoid them on a weekly basis by confronting <laughs> them directly. And isn't that sort of good? I feel like it's good. I feel like it's good for me to sort of stare my fears in the face a little bit with the ocean. It's why I do this to myself. It's why I browse the subreddit for thalassophobia, which is truly just compilations of images that I know will make me freak out. So you're scared of the ocean, but not of Reddit? (laughs) I know, honestly. (laughs) I'm not going to go in those waters. I said it wasn't rational, Alex. Uh, Yeah, I was just making it. I was was just trying to, you know, it was just kind of a, like... What do you think this is? A comedy podcast? (laughs) This is a serious podcast about serious discussions that takes itself extremely seriously, bringing you the the cutting edge science and breaking developments on all the most relevant areas of our lives today. Um, I think that's going to do us. I think it is. I think it's going to do it for us. Great. Cool. Uh, So do you have any personal announcements? Not, not that I can think of. I have never. I don't know that you've ever asked me that. I didn't know. I um, yeah. I just didn't know if you had any announcements that I don't already have no, to I'm, to announce. I'm all good. Do you have announcements to announce? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to give a big thanks to our podcast family over at the Lunar Light Studio Network. There are tons of other fantastic shows on that network, and you should absolutely go check them out. Shows like Storyboard or Ink Tank or Overwitch or The Good Boys Girls, Ending Pending, and a million others besides. All of them very fun and run by exceptionally lovely people. Uh, You should also take a moment, if you haven't already, to check out our Patreon page, The Cryptid Keeper on Patreon.com. We recently updated all of our tiers in excitement for the year ahead. And as a result of that, we are currently sort of doing like a low-key Patreon drive to get up to our next funding goal of $1,000 per month, at which point we will, drumroll please, Val, uh, be doing... (laughs) Are you Val? No. (laughs) 
God. Um, no, I'm kidding. I love you very much. Okay. Uh, at, anyway, at our next funding goal, we will be scheduling our first ever Cryptid Keeper live show. We are about 86% of the way to that goal right now, which is very, very exciting. And if we hit it, like I said, we'll be planning our first live show. We just recently did a Twitter poll to see sort of where that location might end up being. Um, and we kind of have a pretty good idea, but that may change. Or hey, who knows? If we meet and surpass our funding goal in record time, that'll give us plenty of incentive going into the year to maybe do more than one. So Absolutely. go ahead and check that out. If any of our tiers interest you, then... Uh, Feel free to throw some cash our way if you have it to spend. If not, we absolutely enjoy and adore and are very, very grateful for your support in any number of ways, including simply downloading and listening to our podcast. Every time those numbers go up, we feel a little bit better about ourselves because we <laughs> crave validation. <laughs> don't, please don't show our hand like that. Okay. I got nothing to hide. <laughs> they know why I got into this business. <laughs> nothing to hide, nothing to fear. We just spent the last hour gazing into the blobby abyss. I understand. Okay. Yeah, I'm willing to acknowledge some things about myself. And I respect that. So I would like to give a thank you to our audio wizard, Val Patron, and our in-house composer, Andrew Giada, who uh, wrote our theme music. And uh, thanks, as always, to listeners like you. And that was me ripping off PBS a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what are they going to do? Sue you? <laughs> With what money? I don't know. Yeah, their viewers don't make that possible. Oh, no. So, a lot of weird energy here at the end, but um, <laughs> as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. <laughs>